You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. My guest on this episode of The Spear is Josh Webster. Josh, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me today. Glad to be here. So I want to give listeners a little bit of um, sort of background to this episode. Uh, not not too long ago, um, a few episodes ago, we uh, we recorded, we released an episode uh, with a guy named Kevin Mott, an army officer who talked about uh, his time in Afghanistan. He told the story of one particular fight, but also during that deployment, he told a story about when he got he got shot up pretty badly, got shot in the head, um, and you know essentially fell down a mountainside 300 meters. And he said uh, these Air Force PJs that came in and came down and rescued him. And he mentioned Josh Webster was was one of the PJs, and I, it kind of stuck with me as I was editing it. I heard that name again. I thought, I wonder if I can find this guy. I'd love to tell you know to be able to feature a, an Air Force. Um, you know, search and rescue PJ story. So I did some Googling and I finally found a guy that sounded a lot like you, but it turns out he was an army officer. So I'm thinking now this can't be him. This guy's an army officer. Um, but I took a chance and sent a message on LinkedIn, uh, and it was to you. So you were an air force, uh, PJ and you are now an army officer. And when we first linked up and we, we were chatting on the phone, you told me that there was another chapter that even preceded that. I wonder if you can just give listeners a little bit about your military background. Uh, sure thing. Uh, so yeah, my, my history predates being a PJ and I, I'm probably going to out myself for how old I am and how long I've been in. But so I enlisted in the army originally in 1999 and I was 19 years old and I signed up, uh, to be an army ranger and went through the ranger train up, ended up at second range battalion in, uh, Fort Lewis at the time before it had consolidated to JBLM and, uh, spent four years at, 275, worked my way up from rifleman to team leader and did the first two deployments to Afghanistan that that battalion did. So my, my first two was the battalion's first two. And when was that? Was that, I mean, all the way back in 2001, late 2001? Well, I was, um, I graduated from ranger school on 9-11. That, I was oh, that wow. class that came out wow. of the field the morning of. So when I got back to the unit, I became a tab spec for saw gunner, but second battalion wasn't up to deploy. The deployment cycle back then went 312. So 2nd Battalion's first deployment was in February of 02, February, March of 02. That okay. was the first time we'd went over. Okay. And then, yeah, the second deployment just followed up to that. It was in 03, 
most of the year. It, uh, it coincided with the invasion of Iraq. So in March of 03, when I was in Afghanistan for my second tour, Iraq kicked off. So we stayed for a whole nother, at the time it was, a we were doing three month tours. So that became a seven month tour. And when that tour ended, I came home and had the idea I wanted to go back to college and study more and possibly be a doctor. So a couple turn, turn of events, uh, I had, I had trained with and worked with some PJs on that deployment. And a couple of the guys had been, had heard me say I was interested in medicine. And uh, one of them said, hey, why don't you come and try out? If you're going to get out, there's a California pararescue team you can try out for. I'll be there in a year and then you can just come and, you know, you'll, you'll fit right in. You'll just slide into this job. <laughs> so I had very little idea about what I was getting into, but I ETS'd and yeah, just started my third year of, universe, of uh, junior college and drove up to the PJ team, interviewed, got the job. And the following summer, I did the PJ pipeline and went into a full-time job at uh, the 100, at the time it was the 129th rescue squadron. We reflagged to the 131st rescue squadron. So by the late, late 05, I was a beret wearing PJ at that unit. Okay. Um, so late 05, you're, you're into the air force now doing this. Um, how many times did you deploy in that job? I became a PJ, worked on my team for about a year and deployed in 2007 to Afghanistan. And when I came home from that deployment, five days later, I started uh, UCLA to start my, to finish my college degree. Okay. I spent two years at UCLA, 07 to 09. And as soon as I graduated, I went back to my team full time. We did a train up and then we deployed for seven months in 2010. So that was my fourth deployment twice. That's my second one as a PJ. Okay. And I had done, at that point, I had done all four to Afghanistan. So I was fairly used to where all the bases were and kind of what the spread was for the regional control hubs, you know, RC North, RC East. Sure. Um, just, just one more, I guess, point I should probably clarify when, as far as RC East is concerned, I had been there for two of my deployments as a ranger today to the exact base that we're going to talk about today. So I had helped open and stand up that base in 2003. And so, uh, when the 2010 deployment came around, it was, it was pretty nice to get to go back there and see like how everything had developed over all the years. And which is kind of an interesting perspective to be a guy who got to start, kind of start the war. And then at that point it was really the middle. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the lay of the land for how the years worked out. So you went, uh, enlisted in the army, then, uh, into enlisted the Air Force, in the Air Force. Yep. and now back, uh, as an army officer, how'd you end up back in the army? In uh, 2010, after this deployment, I, I came home and was a founding uh, member of a of a nonprofit called Team Rubicon in Los Angeles, where I'm from. And I worked, you know, with Team Rubicon as a director. And in the meantime, a friend of mine died, and his name was Christopher Domey. Uh, me and Chris were privates together in Second Ranger Battalion. I went to his funeral, which is where I am now, back at JBLM Washington. And I was standing there in my Air Force uniform. Um, and the Ranger Regiment XO, who, who was a guy at the time named Major Brown, saw me and asked what I was doing. He said, are you going to continue with medicine? Are you going to go to med school? And I thought, I told him I wasn't. I was looking for something to do. I'd been working with a nonprofit, which I really liked. And he said, 
something to the effect of, well, if you were to come back in, would you ever consider becoming a ranger officer? At that point, at that point, I'd been an E5 for 10 years. I never promoted from the entire time I transferred into the Air Force through the 10 years I'd been in. I remained an E5. The, The qualifications to become an E6 PJ are so high that usually you have plenty of time to get there. But I had been, I'd come in as an E5. So I just basically stopped at that rank. Okay. And I had decided I wasn't going to go into med school at 30. And I, I don't know if he called my bluff or I called his bluff, but <laughs> I definitely asked him for a letter of recommendation. I definitely dropped my OCS packet. And a year later, I was an OCS. I did oh. a lateral commission is what they call it. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Team Rubicon. I think a lot of listeners will be We'll have at least heard of it. Some will be quite familiar with it, what they've done. Um, obviously, we're going to get into the story, but I want to just give a second because I think it's such a great organization. I wonder if you can just take a, you know, a minute and kind of describe what it does and, and how it came to fruition. Uh, of course, yes. Uh, Team Rubicon is a veteran service organization that utilizes the skills and experiences of veterans and frontline workers and emergency response personnel to respond to domestic and international crises. And those can take the form of a a humanitarian crisis or a natural disaster. And so that's how it started. And there's always been kind of two um, parallel groups working side by side, which is Team Rubicon Global, which responds to international incidents and then Team Rubicon Domestic, which has a lot more utilization and it responds to domestic, mostly national uh, natural disasters. The, um, you know, it's in the news. I, I think most listeners will have heard of it. I think that their team Rubicon is doing, uh, you know, missions in support of COVID-19 response mm-hmm. right now. Um, it is just a fantastic organization and something that I wanted to give kind of a quick plug to. And it's really, um, it's impressive, uh, you know, the organization and, and your role in, in, in helping to create it. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about your 2010 deployment, um, you were in Afghanistan. You said you were at a base that you had been at previously. Where, where was that? Uh, we were originally the pararescue squadron, which is part of a rescue squadron, is based out of the Bagram Airfield area because we okay. have a lot of helicopters and maintenance personnel and crew and, and everything. So they put the footprint down over there by uh, in Bagram. And then they, from there, can get kind of uh, partnered out to different organizations that are operating all over the country. There is a second footprint actually down in Kandahar at CAF. So okay. if you can imagine like it's called an expeditionary rescue squadron. And the acronym here is kind of funny because RQS is rescue squadron. And so there's two ERQSs, one in Bagram, one in Kandahar. And so I was my unit to get even more confusing the Air Force doesn't send a whole package from one base at the same time. What does so that mean? The, the PJs showed up from the Moffett, California Guard team. The helicopters and maintainers and, and headquarters were from a completely different unit. So when you show up, the we were replacing the Alaskan National Guard PJs who are very, very good at their job because they do most of the rescues in our community up in Alaska. Okay. We were replacing the Alaska team, but the headquarters, helicopters, pilots, and maintainers were going to stay for another three months. And I think they were from England. They were from the England team. 
And then three months into the deployment, they would all switch out and the Japan team would come in and then for a six month tour. And then three months after that, my whole PJ team would rip out and another PJ team would come in. So there's always an overlap of three months between the, basically all the vehicles in the command structure and the personnel, the PJs who are going to ride on the vehicles. So in, in your experience, is that, um, is that a good thing? Is it, you know, on one hand I can see, you know, working with the same people for an extended period of time might, you might become a little bit more cohesive and a little bit more effective on the other hand to fall in on aircraft and, and pilots and maintainers who have been there for a while and they're kind of into a battle rhythm might make that transition into country a little bit easier. Is that the case? I presume that's the reason they did that uh, because you're required to do 24 hour coverage. I mean, you show up two weeks before you assume coverage and when the coverage window changes between teams, there is a very distinct moment where you take over and you are suddenly on the hook for the next nine line that comes down. So I presume they do it for that reason. The other reason is uh, because of stateside rescue missions are happening, you can't just send an entire rescue squadron out to Afghanistan. Like my California rescue team was in charge of all the rescues on the West Coast under, uh, from Oregon to Mexico and out to Hawaii. Wow. So we often would be doing stateside rescues at home. And then the forward team would be doing rescues in Afghanistan at the exact same day. Okay. So were you, you said that some of the PJs are sort of farmed out to other units. Was that the case with you? My pararescue team, when we first took over, we were not, we were kept in Bagram to do combat search and rescue. So CSAR, which is typically um, a downed aircraft mission, which happens pretty rarely, but there's also personnel recovery or PR. And that happens a little bit more often, which is someone is missing either they become separated from the organization or they're lost or it's a vehicle that's lost. There's also CASIVAC, which is that kind of moving people from out of a firefight to a hospital. And then there's MEDEVAC, which is moving someone from one hospital to a, usually a hospital of higher care. So those four missions we could do pretty easily out of the Bagram airfield and the team down in Kandahar would, uh, would cover all of Southern Afghanistan. And we would call cover pretty much all of Northern Afghanistan. Okay. So you got into country, uh, you said it was 2010. When did you arrive? I believe it was late February, maybe early March when we actually took over from the Alaskan PJs and they had just done a terrible mission that I wouldn't have wished upon any PJ. It involved a lot of body recoveries and they were professionals about it, but they were pretty ready to go. I think. Uh, it, it was a major, a major roadhead collapse north of Bagram, and a landslide had landslide avalanche had covered like a hundred vehicles, and they're they were luckily they're from Alaska. They had their snowshoes and all their gear, and they went around finding the dead and living bodies for for like two weeks or something, just wow. north of Bagram at, in that mountain range. So we, we switched out with them and immediately had another rescue happen, which was a plane descended too early into Bagram Airfield, into Bagram Airfield and crashed into a mountain range right before it landed. So it crashed at, at 15,000 feet. So we had to do a high altitude, seven day high altitude recovery to try and find this thing and get all the personnel out and get the, get the gear out of the aircraft. 
And that was that was right after you arrived in country. That's, as soon as we arrived in country, we were already taking the high altitude medications so we could fly at fourteen thousand feet and not get sick, which okay. is well above the limit of what you should be doing unless you're on oxygen. Sure. So we're going to talk about uh, one particular day uh, that was about four months into your deployment, as I understand it. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe just real briefly, what were those first four months like? How busy, you know, how busy are you? And was it, were you busier than you expected to be? Um, you know, were there, was there a lot of activity? I had only really had one deployment as a PJ to base to have any kind of comparison off. The 2007 deployment was fairly uh, light for for rescues. And so 2010 started off, there was a lot of of action and a lot of stuff to do right off the bat. Uh, We had a a pickup mission that happened in March where the helicopter received so many bullet holes in it that it was basically decommissioned. I think we had 27 bullets come into the helicopter at some point. Uh, we were picking up A and A that were in a in an active firefight, and one of the bullets actually went through the rear, the the sh- drive shaft that powers the rear tail paddle, and we didn't see it, we didn't notice any of it, and we flew home with a drive shaft that had a bullet hole in it. Luckily, we landed fine. It actually took the Korean Air Force a while to repair the the aircraft, but that was considered like our freebie, you know. Like some of the maintainers told us later, like this thing absolutely should have been grounded. Um, we're kind of lucky on that one, but. Wow. So overall it was, it was an active deployment. Yeah, it was very, it was a very active deployment. And then we, the entire community, really the entire air force suffered a really big loss on June 9th, 2010. So the deployment changed on June 9th. Uh, the, the team down in Kandahar, they, they operate in two UH 60, uh, sets. So they fly as a set of two helicopters. Their call signs were Pedro 65 and Pedro 66. Our call signs were Pedro 36 and Pedro 35. Pedro 66 was shot down on June 9th. And there were seven people on board and five died. Wow. So when that, that has happened maybe one other time in the entire past 20 years. So when that happened, we had to First of all, we had to send a lot of dead bodies home from our friends who were in that unit. And a couple guys went down there to support their team emotionally and physically. They had to go become part of their team. We had to flex helicopters and crew down there as well as maintainers to cover the losses they had just sustained. So so my small team actually got split and 25% of it had to go to Kandahar. And the remaining 75% were dealing with the loss of Pedro 66 when the army switched out the brigades in the, in the theater. So June, 2010 was when the 101st came in and relieved the, uh, the previous unit and they took over all the outstations. And what is most interesting here is the Colonel in charge, the, the, the brigade commander, Colonel Pappas, and even maybe the battalion commander, uh, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Vowell knew the pararescue squadron commander who had been a previous army officer. So they contacted him and said, we want you to have a permanent rescue presence in RC East. So you were on, you were co-located with 
um, with the guys in, in Kevin's unit, his battalion? We were. They, um, they figured out a scheme where we could go out there. First of all, we're operating at 75% capacity now, but we could put two helicopters on that base with Task Force No Slack for three-day periods, and then we could fly them all back to Bagram, do a hot swap, so put new crews, gas up, new PJs, and then fly that unit back out to out to Asadabad, and they would do a 72-hour shift. And we were doing these like 72-hour shifts for about two weeks, and it started directly after the June 9th um, downing of Pedro 66, and it went up to June 28th, which was when Strong Eagle 1 happened. And we, we continued okay. for another couple of weeks, but Strong Eagle 1 was the one that kind of set set the tone for what could happen out in RC East. So so June 28th, was that Strong Eagle 1? June 28th was Strong Eagle 1, yes, sir. So this is just for listeners, for a little bit of context, Strong Eagle was a named operation. Um, they had several iterations of it, people who heard uh, Kevin Mott's episode and also who heard Jason Pomeroy's episode um, maybe six months ago, who was in a, uh, also in the same battalion uh, from the 101st No Slack Battalion. Um, that they were on both of their stories took place several months later in what they called Strong Eagle Three Operation Strong Eagle Three. Um, so Strong Eagle One, June twenty eighth. Uh, can you kind of paint the picture of what that day was like? I can. Yes. Uh, so I had been out in Asadabad for my two thousand three deployment. I knew the area fairly well. I'd been built up quite a bit. Um, a low lying. I, I think the geography may have been covered in. There's a small unit actions in Afghanistan booklet called Vanguard of Valor when it, it lays out all the maps and where everything was, but Asadabad had been built up and there were these combat outposts kind of all around it. One of which became a fob, which was fob blessing. Uh, that one was specifically named after Jay blessing who was in my platoon who died on my second deployment. Oh, wow. So we knew the area very well. And the, yeah, you personally seem pretty connected to this part of Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, I would love to go back to this place sometime when it's not in a conflict zone and, and walk yeah. this, these mountains. Like I'm sure people who experienced Vietnam wanted to go back and get some closure by seeing the area they'd been in. I don't know if it's going to happen during my lifetime, but I've spent a couple of years of my life in a 10 kilometer by 10 kilometer grid square on the Chitral river Valley, uh, directly <laughs> what we're going to talk about. Wow. Okay. So, so, so how does, tell us a story about June 28th. On June 28th, uh, we knew it was an early morning mission. We knew that an entire battalion was going to move just just east of the, the FOB, cross a very narrow river, and go into the closest valley to do a, a village clearance, which was just a left to right, west to east, um, ground clearance. And they had overwatch to the north and south of individual companies, as well as a scout OP where the scout platoon was. And um, for us, it was a pretty great setup for a PJ because the time of flight from the action back to the the level, I guess we call it a level three um, medical center, which was the one in Asadabad in the base itself, mm-hmm. was 90 seconds. We okay. could, once we picked up from where we received the casualty from, which was no more than 400 yards, usually from where they were shot or injured, we could be back across the river and putting our, our wheels down in 90 seconds. Wow. So pretty, pretty rare that you get 
that kind of speed uh, just do the proximity. And then there was another crew, not, not um, PJs, but medevac was actually picking. Uh, so army dust off was picking people up from Asadabad and moving them to Jalalabad, which was the bigger hospital, the level two. Okay. And then another group was flying people from Jalalabad back to Bagram from the level two to the level one. So we had this like hopscotch of helicopters built up. That way patients didn't ever have to do like a point of injury flight an hour to Bagram when they were the most susceptible to, you know, rapid onset, some kind of deterioration in, in, you know, an organ system or go into hypovolemia or something like that. So it was pretty well orchestrated uh, by the 101st to have this system set up. And our squadron commander being a former army officer, he just spoke that language. So he knew exactly what to do and how to have us cover down. He knew every time we came back, we were going to get ammunition and gas. We're going to drop patients off, get ammunition and gas. So we did, we, 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 you know, both ships picked up and were overhead when the mission started. If you read the reports, there's a bit of a lull up until about 10 a.m. From about sunrise at 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., we flew for four hours, refueled, and basically stayed on station when they, the unit started calling artillery strikes and close air support. So during this operation, when the battalion heads out, um, are you, so your plan is to stay in the air. It's not to stay on the ground at, at, at Asadabad waiting to, to launch. Yes, sir. The, uh, the plan that they had set up was for us to be a, an aerial personal recovery slash Kaziback asset. Okay. So at around 10 a.m., the company that had been moving west to east on the valley floor next to the wadi got under fire. They ran into you know troops in contact. They hit a tick. Uh, five, four or five were immediately injured and pulling the bodies back. One of them was killed. So our our first time we sat down was to pick up those the KIA. Uh, the first KIA we picked up, moved it back to Sadabad, then we immediately went back and picked up the four wounded who had a little bit of time to wait and then move them back. And from then on for the next, I'd say six hours, my, my aircraft, my, my UH-60 and the other UH-60 just hopscotched. So one person would do aerial cover and the other person, the other helicopter would go do the rescue or the, or the CASI back. Okay. And so you've got two aircraft in the, in the air at any given time, you get a call that says you need a Kazivak. um, one lands, the other one stays in the air, and then the next time you flip-flop? Mm-hmm. So our officer at, at the, the time of was a, he was a former Marine Corps infantry officer who had changed over to the Air Force. He was flying in the other helicopter, and he would just make the call, hey, 3-6, hey, three, you go in. Hey, 3-3, three, three. yeah, it was 3-6 it was and 3-5. So you say, 3-6, you go in, 3-5's got uh, orbit. Okay. And the, the PJ helicopters are outfitted with two large caliber guns where the flight engineer and the crew chief sit, the flight engineer and the gunner sit, excuse me. And that day they were 50 cals and Gatling guns. So we had pretty good firepower in the air. Okay. So when you, how many times did you, I guess, launch this? How many times did you get called in over the course of this day, your team? So my team landed... I think six separate times to pick people up and the six or seven and the other bird was six because okay. in total we did 13 landings that day. And I think we transported something like 15 patients. 
And how many of those times, I mean, you know, is it, are you under fire during some of them? Are there times when it's dicey and you don't know if you can land? The schematics on the Vanguard of Valor had the point of injury and the pickup site only about 500 meters apart, which is still within small arms range, but because the people were shooting from an orchard, that was another 500 meters from the point of injury. We had about a thousand meters to where the enemy was positioned. So when we were landing, we weren't technically under fire, even though a thousand meters really isn't that far considering a lobbed RPG round or the fact that there were already ideas that had gone off. So for the most part, no. We were landing in low ground, the first two pickups. The third pickup was on a mountaintop. I think it was Bravo Company. We picked up someone who had been shot in the um, in the butt. I don't know if I can say that. Someone yeah. had been shot. Someone had been shot in the rear. Another guy had been shot, and it was a through and through. He was the fourth pickup. The fifth was a walking wounded. I don't remember the sixth, but I do remember when we were going to get Kevin for the seventh. So that was the final, the final pickup of the day. It was the the cruise runoff crew rest cycles where they're allowed to fly. I say air quotes allowed to fly between yeah. ten and twelve hours. They need to have a break because it's just absolute emotional saturation to fly a helicopter sure. into gunfire. And the way that they fly, especially like just wears them out. It just drains them. So okay. we were hitting our window for crew rest and having to put the birds down. We'd refueled six times and rearmed about twice oh. of ammunition. So every time we had dropped patients off, we had to sponge the helicopters we had we had to get a hose and hose the helicopters out so the inside was looking like a mess a lot of our gear was used up because as you transport patients you end up just bandages and, and splints and trying to stop bleeding you're trying to put fluids in people and you're doing it all in two minutes so stuff just goes flying out the doors often neck braces and and airway devices and everything so when and how many people are in each of the two aircraft so the crew is four it's a pilot co-pilot in the front and then there's two more people. It's the flight engineer and the gunner who are permanent air crew, and they sit facing out behind the pilot and the co-pilot. And then the two then, PJs are in the are in the back. So there's six okay. total in mine and seven in the other because they had the extra officer. Okay. And the two of you, when you do a pickup, are providing initial care as well? Usually both of us work at the same time. So we're on our knees. We bring in as many patients as we can, or that's feasible. And then we just shut the doors. And, you know, as we're kneeling in the helicopter over these guys, we just start working on them to do whatever we can. So usually this day, there was a lot of gunshot wounds. So it was a lot of trying to either assess how bad the bleeding was, or just simply get them to the hospital. Because packing a wound doesn't take more than about two minutes from a line medic. Mm -hmm. Often they had... They had tourniquets applied and they had already had combat gauze pushed into the bullet holes. But um, the shock of moving someone can also restart a wound bleed and it can cause someone who's been laying down and has lost a bunch of blood. When they stand up, they'll get nauseous and dizzy because their blood pressure is really low. So they may pass out, have to be carried or um, they, their blood pressure may drop, which means their heart rate, and respirations will go up, which which can make them unstable momentarily. So it's just a lot of like, it's a lot of TLC. You got to provide soldiers when they're going through that process from getting 
you know, standing in grass to getting on a helicopter and picking up and flying at full speed to a helicopter to a um, hospital. We had done that except for the one KIA. That was pretty much the method we had used just on our knees working on people. But we had heard about a gunshot wound and, and a missing soldier. And for us, that's always like big red flashing lights. Okay. Missing soldier. We have to go get whoever this missing soldier is. We heard shot in the head, but stable because all the aircraft comm systems are on the same net as the battalion command net. And since the company commanders are all talking on battalion command, we can hear what they're saying. And so we knew about where to go and where to start looking. And the crew was asking, Hey, how much time do you guys need? If we, can we do one more rescue? We can do it if you can find them. That's what the, that's what the pilots were saying to us. They were saying something like, can we do this? We have to do it really fast because we're being go on. We're going to go bingo on fuel, which means we're going to go out on fuel. We're due back. We have to switch in for a new crew and there's no good time to do it because the fighting was so sporadic. This is what time? This is probably around 16, 1700. Okay. We've been in the air since zero six. So we've probably been up in the air for 10 hours. So you get the call, the pilots say, Hey, if you can, if you can find him, um, we can do this, but it's gotta be quick. And then what happens? We knew where the Ford observer was. That was his radio guy. And all we knew it was a captain. All we really knew it was an officer. I thought they said company commander because I heard captain on the net and his FO was on a rock outcropping right near one of the companies that we had already picked up someone who had a gunshot wound. So. We opened both doors and my other PJ's name was Larry Hiyakamoto. Um, he was in one door. I was looking at the other. We flew up to the rock outcropping and I recognized the, I was still just kind of sitting in the doorway. I recognized the Ford observer and he was pointing down the side of the mountain. And he said, I could see him making the mouthing the words like he's down there. You have, you have to go down there and get him. And which meant um, we just kind of had to do it visually. So, they, 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 the pilots, we got on the net, you know, we're always talking in this, the, the voice activated internal mics of a helicopter are such that you can just talk and everyone can hear you at once. Sure. So it allows you to stand in the door with your arms holding either side and lean, you can lean all the way out as if you were like, I don't know if you have any, like if you're performing jump master duties and you have to do that part where you have to lean out the door to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to see the forward leading edge and the rear, you know? That, that move you make where you kind of like push your chest out and your your body is about almost completely outside the aircraft. Sure. We're both doing that and the helicopter starts doing what's called a side slope where the pilot just presses a pedal down and he holds the stick straight and the helicopter just dips one side and slides down the side of a, a mountain. So it's not like he's going forward. He's going sideways down. Okay. Wow. And he slides down about... 10 seconds worth, so about 200 meters, and I see a brown circle of something. And so we're what at- is the, What does the mountainside look like? Is it is it rocky? Is it wooded? It's rock. It's rock. There's very few trees. It's about at a 45 degree angle. So maybe 45, 50, 60 degrees. So if you were on it, you would probably be walking your hands and knees. Okay. You, you wouldn't be able to walk. You'd be, yeah, you'd be crawling. But there's not, there's, there's not so much vegetation that you, you can't see- the ground there's little sporadic trees maybe they're uh two to three feet tall 
Uh, it's mostly that um, just like brown, just mostly brown. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we see some more brown, but it's darker colored. I tell them to, to drop. I say, I see him. The helicopter drops down to the 50 foot level and it's just gear. So I'm talking in real time. I'm saying, I'm saying he must have pulled his quick release. That's all his gear. And it was his kit, his helmet. Um, I didn't see his gun, but you know, we were kind of yelling and we said, keep going. And they slid another hundred or so meters. And I see this body and it's a guy and he's laying on his side and he's in the, we call it the recumbent position in, in medical, but he's just kind of laying on his side using his hands as a pillow. He's kind of holding his head. And on the net, they're saying, oh, he's, he's talking to us. He's active. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head, there's no way this guy is talking to anyone. He doesn't even have his kitty, so he doesn't have his radio. Like whatever call they made that he was, <laughs> that he was alert and ready to be picked up. Um, someone misunderstood that because okay. we hovered over top. He didn't move. And I looked at the other PJ and I, I put my hand on my fist. I put a closed fist on top of an open palm, um, which is sign language for I will Rochambeau you to do this. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, paper, rock, scissors, on one hand. Yeah, I'll, I will paper, rock, scissors you to do this rescue. And um, bless his heart. The other PJ's name is, I said his name already. It's Larry Hiakamoto. Larry was our, our in practice. He was in our, he was our team chief. Uh, he had been on the Pablo Escobar mission. Oh, wow. So, so Larry wasn't going to compete with this young E5 <laughs> PJ, former ranger to do this pickup, he, he happily said, I will get on the gun. And he jumped on the minigun. The flight engineer popped out of his seat, grabbed the hoist cable um, maneuver button. And I grabbed the closest thing to me, which was the rescue strap, hooked myself into the hoist. And then they started lowering me down. They lowered me down onto the mountainside. And it was kind of like uh, rock climbing. Cause I had all this, I had this wire and I was trying to manage it all. And I, I crawled to Kevin and I see him and he's, he's unconscious. And I kind of like lay on top of him and I grab the back of his head with one hand and I, I start to lift his head up. And, and I've told him this after the fact, his entire scalp peeled off the back of his head, exposing his, his uh, skull. So the bullet, when it had come in, had kind of whipped through his Kevlar and scalped him. It had drawn a line from the back of the crown of his head across his forehead back to the other back of the crown. Oh. So the whole thing peeled off and it was attached in the back. So I just, I had my hand there. I just kind of like gently laid his hair and head back on his skull. And then I just hugged him and took my other hand and started attaching everything I had on my kit to him. So it was like rescue strap around his waist. And then my extra Procell went around him in an angle. Then my other extra leg leg strap went around his other shoulder. And I was just connecting everything to me. Is there is there a, a standard way that you're supposed to do that? Or there, is that there, what you're supposed to do is just do it not what whatever you can? Do. That's not okay. what you're supposed to do. So if we would have known he was in the condition he was in, we would have brought down a Stokes basket. It takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder to do because Stokes baskets can spin yeah. And so you need two people, you need one basically on the ground to like hold a tether rope and tether it up while another PJ who's connected to the basket, which has a patient in it, rides it up. 
we had nowhere near the amount of time to do that. Um, there were bullets skipping off the ground all around us. And the other bird reported later, I'm sorry, the other helicopter crew who was in a hover reported seeing RPGs landing near us. So they were, they were fairly concerned about me doing this quickly. Yeah. And I did the best I could do. I, I just bear hugged him, got everything attached under his legs and around his back, threw his head over one shoulder and then gave the all clear sign to, to start picking us up. And I, I pulled my rifle out from between us because now we're belly to belly and was aiming it down at where I thought the, the fire was coming from. And then just kind of managed the wire with my left hand that was hooked around the back of his head. And they hoisted us up, got us to the door of the helicopter. Larry just lunged out and pulled us both in. And we fell down on Kevin's back. So I'm still on top of him. My hand is still holding his head on, his, head, his hair on his head. And uh, the pilots just, you know, pressed the pedal, turned the thing towards Asadabad and flew at 130 knots. 90 seconds later, we dropped him off in the hospital. Oh, when you, um, so when you get on the ground, you said you saw him, he wasn't moving. He wasn't responsive. Did you do quick checks to just, I mean, did you, how did, did you even know whether he was alive at that point? Well, he, he was alive. He was breathing and, and his eyes were, he was able to open his eyes a little bit. And when we got him in the helicopter, of course, we want to start doing like a, a blood sweep, but my hand is like kind of behind his neck. And after the fall, you're always worried about a spine injury, head, neck, back. It's all just been moved because we had to pick this guy up. So I kind of like slithered off him and was holding his head and checking him <laughs> and a, a classic combative patient you know, they're, they fight you like his hands were up and he's, he's doing this forward dog paddle thing, like trying to get these hands off him. I'm pro probably unsure where he was at the time, Yeah, yeah. but mostly just making sure he hadn't been shot as well. And we, we didn't just jostle a blood clot free by, by doing this thing. But we, they, they came out with a stretcher cause we called ahead and said, Hey, this patient's non-ambulatory. They came out with a stretcher. We put him on from what I understand, they brought him right inside and removed his scalp and then did what's called a, a craniectomy, which was cutting a giant square in someone's scalp and taking the top of the scalp off because patients in that condition have had such bad head trauma that their brain is swelling to such a degree that if they don't get some relief of pressure, then they're going to hemorrhage their own brain down their brainstem, which is, which is a recipe for someone they die when that happens. Yeah. Um, so the, you know, they talk about, and, and Kevin, I think mentioned it, uh, in our, uh, in our podcast, they talk about the, you know, the golden hour, this limited period of time in which you have to get a casualty from the battlefield, you know, through into the, into the system, so to speak, getting, getting care. Um, you know, I, I want to be, um, I guess ask this in an appropriate and, and sensitive way, but are you, I mean, are you thinking at these points, uh, you know, what, during a rescue like this about whether or not this guy's likely to survive? Is that something that, and then once you drop him off, is that something that, you know, is on your mind or do you try not to think about it? We think about it. You, you can't help but think about what the likelihood of survival is when you pick up or drop off someone or, or work on a patient. But I'd be remiss not to tell you that the golden hour has a history. So when I first joined the army in 99, the golden hour was being taught as a relevant medical statistic. And by the time I left the air force in 2012, 
we were no longer using it as a valuable marker for for longevity, recovery, or um, survivability. Why? Because there's nothing magical about an hour. Some people can survive days with major massive trauma, and some people um, fall off and don't survive something they should have because of some trick of fate or some bad luck or, you know, one centimeter difference. Um, hypovolemia, which is a, a heavy bleed, which comes after a gunshot wound, it kills you much faster than an hour. If you don't stop the bleeding and it's a major vital organ or it's a major um, pulmonary system or respiratory or circulatory system that got severed, it's more like a golden minute. Um, so, like I said, that, that used to be taught as something that was absolutely doctrine and sacrosanct. And then we had throughout the course of the war, people were surviving um, with 30 minutes of CPR, which was an unheard of medical outcome in 2000. You had ranger medics doing CPR on people who were un- responseless for 30 minutes and surviving because they just kept their blood circulating. They got them to, to Heath Craig, which is the level one army hospital in Bagram. They put 30 units of blood in them, put them in an ice bath and did a craniectomy and the guy lived. So a lot of that stuff changed. I mean, a lot of medicine has changed in the last 20 years because of this war. Were you, were you surprised? Um, not only that, that Kevin survived, but that he, he was ultimately, um, brought back to the United States, recovered, and five months later, he was back in Afghanistan? Surprised is the understatement. (laughs) I don't think anyone expected that to happen. Um, I I had the best view of what he, what his, how he was mentating and what he looked like when we picked him up. And when I heard that story, I thought there, you got to be talking about a different Captain Kevin Mott. I know his name is specific, but that can't be the same guy. Um, After the incident, ABC News found out about it and it was a high profile mission, a high profile rescue. So they embedded a team with us and a fantastic news team. And they, they wanted to be around and ask questions and see if something like that was going to happen again. They could get footage. Of course, the Murphy's Law, nothing happened for the next two weeks. And they went away with very little good footage to use. Um, but but a, a fantastic group of people, nonetheless. And uh, while the reporter was better with us, she wanted to know if I wanted to know if he survived. And I said, of course I do. And she found out. And then she said, uh, you know, his, you know, one of his commanders wants to know if the, the parents are really interested because he's now woken up with this kind of head injury. There's no memory. There's no memory. He doesn't remember anything from that, that day, that week. Yeah. Going two weeks back, his memory is completely gone. There's no one to really do the after action report or, or give a report back to his parents and surprise, surprise, his parents live 30 minutes from your base in California. Oh, wow. So, you know, this, this reporter, lovely dear, she, she put me in touch with his parents when we got home and I, I explained what happened and gave them some, some closure. And, and, you know, as things wound out, the years came around, I, me and Kevin finally met and we became friends and, uh, yeah, now I'm an officer in the army with him, which I think yeah. is, I think is a uh, comedy. That's, that's comedy. It's not irony. That's comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't, I've yet to work with him, even though I'm dying to. So what does, um, 
a day like that where you're out for, you know, 12 hours or however long, um, you know, 13, uh, 13 Kazovac mission. I mean, just sort of constant. What does that, what does it feel like at the end of a day like that? There is a strange requirement for rescue workers. I guess this probably goes with firefighters and emergency room doctors, people who train for terrible things to happen so that they get to do their job. And it's this feeling of completion or maybe validation. Mm -hmm. You take a PJ who's gone through a three year, the, the pipeline to become a PJ is three years long. And the on-the-job training to train up to be able to fly on one of the helicopters is another entire year. So after four years of doing nothing but train, you really, really do want to do your job. And when a day like that happens, you feel completely vindicated that you spent that much time preparing for something like that. You know, we, we talked about how you've spent a lot of time in the same 10 kilometer by 10 kilometer grid square in uh, in Eastern Afghanistan. Um, you know, the, the idea behind the spear is to sort of, um, we launched it to try to sort of explore the combat experience. And one of the first things that we realized is how, that there's no such thing as the combat experience because mm. every combat experience is, is fundamentally different in, in terms of the way an event unfolds. You know, a firefight is not the same as any other firefight, um, but also in terms of uh, the decision-making, the leadership skills required, um, they're just very different. But it strikes me that, you know, being a PJ, doing this job that you were doing, you know, over the course of these deployments, and especially on this day, on June 28th, 2010, is fundamentally different than being on the ground as, a, you know, a ranger rifleman. Um, did it did it feel different? Were there any other sort of unique distinctions that are worth sort of discussing? One of the most unique distinctions going from assaulter to medic is your scope of practice as a medic expands and it becomes so much more intricate that when it comes to worrying about yourself or your teammates, there is a massive change. So as a, as a fire team leader, as a ranger fire team leader, I'm tremendously worried, concerned about the accuracy of my marksmanship, my physical fitness and my team, not in that mm -hmm. order. And so I'm on the lookout for all these external threats that could kill us and that we may need to kill. And then as a medic, I have an entire tactical medical handbook in my brain that I'm, I'm walking around with at all times. So now all the external threats that I was talking about earlier all become internal problems. So now I'm not afraid of anything because I am constantly thinking about how is my patient going to die? How, how is this system going to fail? And this system going to fail? What happens if we run out of gas? What happens if we run out of blood? What happens if he gets sick and starts throwing up? Oh my God, have I done this, that, and the other thing? So it, it no longer becomes like a game of protecting me, protecting my guys. It becomes protect this patient. And so the fear level actually turns way down. That, that dial turns, goes from a nine to like a three. And sometimes it goes completely off because there's so much to do with an injured patient, you're never done. You never have time to like breathe and go, oh, what's going on around me? You know, you often just get buried in this patient and uh, there's a massive um, perspective shift between the two jobs because of that. 
Well, Josh, thanks so much for, for sharing the story. You know, um, I think, you know, listeners might have the opportunity if we can, if we can make it work to, to hear from you again, because when I reached out and said, Hey, would you be willing to tell this, the story I meant of the rescue of Kevin Mott, since we had, you know, featured his, um, uh, you know, we had featured him in an episode recently, but you kind of came back to me with <laughs> more than a few stories that would make fantastic episodes <laughs> of the spear. And, uh, so I think we might try to make something work to have you on again, just because you've got so many, um, interesting and worthwhile and, and really varied experiences, um, uh, that I think listeners will, uh, will, will enjoy hearing. So, but thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing the story and giving listeners the, the sort of their first taste on the spear of, um, you know, a, a, a small, but really, really important, uh, part of the U S military, the, the air force PJs. Well, I appreciate everything you're doing and, uh, thanks for having me on. And I hope that anything I say on here, uh, is, is taken the right way, of course, um, a lot of respect for, of course, every branch and every person in every branch having, having switched branches twice. My allegiances <laughs> are to the Department of Defense. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I love your show and I'll just keep listening. And if you call again, I'll be ready. Appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.